there's a test that's used in logical reasoning called the duck test. Most of you are probably familiar with the duck test. It goes like this. If it looks like a duck, swims like a duck, and quacks like a duck, then it probably is a duck. It makes sense, doesn't it? The point is that you can tell a whole lot about the identity of someone or something by paying attention to its characteristics, to its habits, to the ways that it lives, to the ways that it behaves. There's consistency between what something is and what it does. Ducks do duck-like things. Penguins do penguin-like things, hamsters do hamstery kinds of things, and the same principle applies when it comes to those things that make up our identities as humans. If somebody has a room full of musical instruments and they're always bobbing their head and using the steering wheel like a drum and they're in a band, there's a good chance that they're a musician. If somebody's at the gym all the time and they wear athletic clothing and drink protein shakes and play on sports teams, they're probably an athlete. If somebody says A a lot and apologizes when other people bump into them and they like hockey and maple syrup, they're probably Canadian. That one might be a little bit more of a stereotype, but you get the point. Those major aspects of our identity shape the habits and behaviors that make up our lives. But of course, it's not always that simple. You know this, we all know this because human beings are more complicated creatures than ducks. Can I get an amen? The way we understand our identity and the way that plays out in our lives can be more complex than the duck test really gives room for. For example, think for a second about this question. What are the key characteristics and behaviors that define a Christian? What comes to mind for you when you think about that question? The truth is that if I asked a hundred different people that very same question, I could quite possibly get a hundred different answers, even within the church. And some responses would line up with each other and with the gospel and would kind of highlight different aspects of this beautiful reality of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And some of them would not. Some of them would be based on skewed ideas that we have about who God is and what he calls us to, or preconceptions that we've developed because of the way that we've grown up, or ideas that we've adopted that don't actually line up with the gospel at all. Sometimes we get distorted ideas about who we are and what we're called to as followers of Jesus. And this is not a new phenomenon. It's a reality that the church has been navigating for as long as it has existed. And it's the exact kind of thing that Paul's addressing in the passage that we're looking at today. We are now in week eight in our series uh, in the book of Colossians, which puts us at chapter three, verses 12 to 17. If you're just jumping in with us or you need a little bit of a, a refresher, here's what you need to know about the book of Colossians. Colossians is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a church in a place called Colossae. This was a new church that Paul has been told about, and he's sending this letter from prison to encourage the new Christians and to make sure that they're staying on course in terms of how they're understanding and growing in and living out their faith. Most of the new believers receiving this letter were Gentiles, which means that they came from non-Jewish backgrounds. 
And so they would have been involved in the pagan religions that were dominant in that culture. And one thing that Paul knew really well from experience is that when people come to Christ, when people surrender their lives to Jesus, they always bring preconceptions and ideas about God and life and what it means to live as a person of faith. In Paul's world, the Jewish people had their own ideas about what it meant to live faithfully. Even within the Jewish culture, they had different sects that had different beliefs and practices that impacted the way they understood Jesus. People from a pagan background had their own ideas about the gods and about what they needed to do in order to earn their favor and to protect themselves from their wrath. And what would often happen in new churches is that they would start off well. They would start off focused in Christ with a clear understanding of the gospel, and then new teachers would show up with a different message. Normally, they would still talk about Jesus, but they would have an extra to-do list that they would tack on to that message. There would be laws that people would need to follow or rituals that they needed to perform if they really wanted to earn their way into God's good books. And the reason that this was such a huge problem is that this new teaching actually made sense to people. It lined up a little bit better with their preconceptions about God and his expectations of us. It made sense to people that there would be things that they needed to do to earn their salvation and to make God happy with them. And so their focus would shift. And suddenly they'd be heading in a whole new direction that was all about them and what they were able to do rather than complete dependence on Christ and what he did on the cross. And this is the exact kind of situation that we've seen Paul warning the Colossian church about. In chapter two, Paul addresses this really directly. He says, don't let anyone judge you because of what you eat or don't eat, or because you do or don't observe the Sabbath or participate in Jewish festivals. Don't let anyone make you feel like you need to chase after mystical experiences or engage in ascetic practices or do anything else in order to be loved and accepted by God. Essentially, what Paul is pointing out is that the rules and the rituals aren't the things that make a Christian a Christian. That's not to say that in and of themselves, they're necessarily bad. In fact, some of them can be really beautiful ways of connecting with God when Christ is at the center. But they're not the things that make a Christian a Christian. Those external behaviors don't define us as followers of Jesus. They don't act as criteria that determines who is in and who is out. The only thing that defines us is Christ. He's our hope. He's our salvation. We're in him and he's in us. We've died to our old selves and been raised to new life in Christ. It's all about Jesus. Paul makes this really clear for anyone who might have been wavering in the Colossian church. But he doesn't leave them hanging there. We can imagine that anyone who had kind of fallen into that trap of defining their faith by the rules and the rituals might be feeling like they just had their legs taken out from underneath of them. If it's not about the fasting, if it's not about the festivals or the bumper stickers or the conferences or the Christian oven mitts, what does it look like when our faith takes shape in our lives? If it's not about the religious rules and the rituals and what we so often associate with Christianity, what does it look like practically when we're growing in Christ? What are the habits and the behaviors that are characteristic 
of a follower of Jesus? This is the question that Paul addresses in our passage this morning. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and make a guess about an article of clothing that you have in your closet or in your dresser or in your laundry basket at this very moment. I bet that there is an article of clothing in there that you absolutely love, but that you would never wear out in public. Maybe it's an old sweatshirt or a torn up pair of jeans or sweatpants, but whatever it might be, there's an article of clothing that you've had forever that is so comfortable, but that you know you need to change out of really quickly if the doorbell rings because it is so unflattering and so ragged that you can't imagine being seen in it by anyone who hasn't covenanted before God to be yours forever. You know the piece of clothing that I'm talking about. And I'm assuming that Paul could relate to this too, because in our passage, this is the metaphor that he uses. He talks about taking off our old sinful nature, like an old set of clothes that should never be worn in public, and clothing ourselves with our new nature, which is being renewed in the image of Christ. Last week, we looked at chapter 3, verses 5 to 11, and Pastor Jeff talked about the things that Paul tells the Colossian church to take off to put to death in their lives. Paul says to have nothing to do with sexual immorality, with impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, dirty language, or lying. And of course, this isn't an exhaustive list. Paul's just naming some of the specific ways that sin shows up in our lives. And he says to get rid of it, to take off those patterns and behaviors that might feel good in the moment, but that ultimately lead to destruction. Destruction within their own lives, the destruction of others, and the destruction of community. Paul says, take off those old sinful clothes. They don't fit you anymore. They don't suit you anymore. They're gross. Get rid of them. There's no negotiations here. You can't dress up that old torn up sweatshirt by throwing a bow tie on top of it. And this isn't a Zoom meeting. You can't wear your old sweatpants on the bottom and a collared shirt on top and call it business casual. Take off the old stuff from head to toe and put on the new wardrobe that God has designed for you as you take on his nature. And in our passage this morning, Paul's going to talk about what that new wardrobe looks like and how our faith takes shape in our lives as we're renewed in the image of our creator. That's where we're going to turn now. So if you have your Bible, you can open it up to Colossians 3, verses 12 to 17. And we're going to start with verses 12 to 14. Paul says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and above all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Paul starts this section of the passage by reminding the Colossians who they really are, about their true identity as followers of Christ. They are chosen, they are holy, and they are dearly loved. This is important. So much of how we live and how we interact with God and with others is shaped by the way we see ourselves. 
We live in a world that's constantly putting labels on us, where we're constantly putting labels on ourselves. So we need this reminder now just as much as Paul's readers did 2,000 years ago. So before we go any further, let's pause for a minute to let those words sink into your own heart. This is how God sees you too. This is who you are in Christ. In Christ, you are chosen. You are holy. Maybe you don't feel terribly holy, but that's the good news. It's not up to you. You're in Christ, so you're covered in his holiness. You are chosen. You are holy. You are dearly loved. Then Paul goes on to describe the kinds of clothes that chosen, holy, and dearly loved people wear, the way they behave. And the first characteristic that Paul names is compassion, or as the NLT translates it, tender-hearted mercy. The word compassion is actually translated from two Greek words, and the first word refers to internal organs, which kind of seems weird to us, but at the time it was how people understood uh, where, the place that emotions kind of developed, how we, how we think of hearts today. And the second word is often translated as mercy. So essentially what Paul is telling us to do here is to care about people with all of our guts, to slow down enough to see them, to listen to them, and to genuinely care about what's going on in our lives. In our busy world, the truth is that this doesn't come naturally to us. Often we are too distracted to notice what, what's going on in other people's lives, even the people that we see every single day. Bob Goff says, when I say I don't have time, what I really lack is compassion. People own watches. God owns time. We're called to be people who set ourselves aside long enough to show up for others. We're called to be people who care about others with all of our guts. And then he moves on to kindness. Kindness is one of those things that we're really good at teaching to children. We've got a daycare full of kids here at Evergreen, and I always hear the teachers giving kids these reminders. Be gentle, use kind words, share your toys, don't bite your friends. We're good at calling kindness out of our children, but I'm not sure that kindness is a value that we give as much priority to in our own lives as we grow into adulthood. Sometimes our need to be right gets in the way of our kindness. Sometimes our pride or our insecurity or our entitlement or our critical spirit get in the way of our kindness. But kindness isn't something that we're supposed to grow out of. It's a quality that God wants to grow in us as we draw closer and closer to him. We'd all do well to follow the guidance that we give to our kids. Be gentle, use kind words, share your toys, and don't bite your friends, literally or metaphorically. Next, Paul talks about putting on humility. Humility is not a quality that was actually valued at all in the Greco-Roman culture that Paul was writing in, and it isn't a quality that's really valued that, that much in our culture either. Humility isn't about putting ourselves down or beating ourselves up for the ways that we fall short. Sometimes there's that misconception, but true humility actually comes from knowing who we are in Christ. And in this case, in case you've forgotten, let me remind you what Paul has just said. You are chosen, you are holy, and you're dearly loved. That is your identity. Now, I know it might seem counterintuitive to say that humility comes from seeing ourselves in this way, but the truth is when you know that your identity is secure in Christ, 
you just don't have anything to prove. When you know how perfectly loved and accepted you are exactly as you are, suddenly you don't need all of the applause from others. You don't need to be in the spotlight all of the time. You don't need to be the smartest or the strongest or the most important person in any room. When our identity is rooted in Christ, suddenly we're free to set ourselves aside and to lift others up, to celebrate their accomplishments, to cheer them on for their successes. Suddenly we're free to serve others, to make sacrifices, and to lay down our rights and our status for the sake of others. Suddenly we're free to be wrong and to have weaknesses and to make mistakes and to have gifts and strengths and successes without any of those things being what defines us or gives us our value. Danielle Strickland defines humility as agreeing with God about who you are. And I think that's a really powerful way to look at it. When we get stuck in insecurity, we aren't agreeing with God about who we are. Where's our focus? Our focus is on ourselves and the ways that we don't measure up. When we get puffed up with pride, we aren't agreeing with God about who we are. Where's our focus? Again, our focus is on ourselves and on all of the ways that we are the bomb at absolutely everything. True humility comes from agreeing with God about who he says we are. Chosen, holy, dearly beloved. And resting in that identity as we shift our attention away from ourselves and towards God and others. Next, Paul tells us to put on gentleness. Again, gentleness isn't something that's valued all that much in our culture. In fact, it's often misinterpreted as weakness. But have you ever tried to be gentle when you're at the end of your rope and that person, you know the person I mean, that person who just gets under your skin is pushing all of your buttons. Being gentle often takes an incredible amount of strength. It is a courageous thing to be gentle in a world that's obsessed with flexing power and putting other people in their place. And then Paul tells us to clothe ourselves in patience. That's a hard one, isn't it? We live in a world that loves efficiency. We love quick results. Patience does not come easily for us. I hope I'm not alone in that. And that is true when it comes to delivery times for online purchases. I mean, I struggle to understand why anything should take more than one day to arrive at my doorstep. It's true when it comes to waiting in the lineup at Tim Hortons, and it's true when we're dealing with other people. When people don't give us the results that we're looking for, when they don't act the way that we want them to act or say the things that we want them to say or make the changes in their lives that we know would be best for them, we get frustrated. But God is immensely patient with us. And he calls us to be immensely patient with others, to love them, to bear with them just as God continues to love us and bear with us even when we're not at our best. And then Paul calls us to make allowance for each other's faults and to forgive those who offend us just as God forgives us. Now there's a, a, a passive component and an active component to what Paul says here. First, he says to make allowance for each other's faults. And ultimately, this is what he's saying here. There are things that people will do. There are habits and isms that people will have. There are mistakes that people will make and flaws that you will notice in the people around you. And you know this to be true. I mean, at this very moment, you're probably 
thinking of someone in your life and that thing that they do, you know the thing, the thing that drives you just a little bit bananas. And sometimes people just don't need your feedback about it. Sometimes you just need to accept people as they are and to make room for all of their quirks for the sake of your relationship. And then he says, forgive those who offend you. So this is the active component. When we're living in community with others, when the relationships are real and close, it is inevitable that we will run into situations where people hurt us. C.S. Lewis once said, forgiveness is a lovely idea until you have something to forgive. We don't need to pretend that this is easy. Sometimes true forgiveness takes time and prayer and processing and hard conversations. But Paul tells us to be people who forgive because we are people who have been forgiven by God. And then above all, Paul says, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. When in doubt, go with love. Love is the defining feature of life and relationships in the kingdom of God. It's what holds us together in unity as God loves us and we love God and God empowers us to love one another. In its purest form, Christianity is a movement that is defined by love. Let's look at the rest of our passage. Verse 15 it says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body, you were called to peace. The word here that's used for rule actually means to act as a judge or an umpire. So what Paul's calling us to do is to make our decisions based on what will lead to peace. Can you imagine what our communities would look like if we let peace be the umpire in how we navigate situations? Let's try that. Let's put that into practice this coming week. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And then he says, be thankful. There's that call to gratitude again. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Paul paints a picture of a community that is centered in the gospel, where we're learning from one another and encouraging one another and expressing ourselves together in worship. And then he says, verse 17, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now that, my friends, is as good of a litmus test as we could get. Whatever situation we're facing, whatever decision we're making, whatever conversation we find ourselves in, we can ask ourselves, can I honestly say that the things I'm doing and the things I'm saying are being done in the name of Jesus? Am I representing Christ well to the people around me? And if the answer is no, it's the perfect opportunity to stop and to realign our hearts with Christ before we move forward. So if we zoom out and look at the sinful nature that Paul's telling us to take off in our lives and the qualities that he's calling us to clothe ourselves in as we center our lives in Christ, there's a key shift that he wants us to make. Paul's calling us to shift our attention away from ourselves and towards others. 
All of those things that Paul talks about when he describes the sinful nature are ways that we use and abuse others for our own agenda or our own pleasure. Sexual sin, greed, anger, slander, lying, these are all things that might seem to work for our benefit in the moment. But the damage other people and tear apart our communities and in the end, they're destructive in our own lives as well. But the qualities that he calls us to, to, to put on, to clothe ourselves in, prioritize the good of others and the good of our communities. Now, maybe you're listening today and you're thinking, this sounds really hard. The religious stuff, following the rules and the rituals, going to the conferences, getting the bumper stickers, those outward religious practices actually seem a whole lot easier to master than the way of life that Paul has just described in this passage. And I think that that's why sometimes we hold so tightly to those things, because they give us the sense that we've got it all together. But it's not about whether or not we've got it all together. Spoiler alert, we don't. It's about living our lives in Christ and trusting in his grace through the ups and downs we face along the way. In Galatians, Paul talks about some of these very same character qualities as fruit of the Spirit. And I've seen a lot of fruit trees in my life. There's an apple orchard where I like to go running. And right now the trees are in blossom with these beautiful white flowers. It's awesome. And in all of the times that I've run by that apple orchard, I have never seen an apple tree push. I've never seen a fruit tree of any kind straining itself, grunting, trying really hard to produce fruit. Apple trees produce apples because they're apple trees. It's what they do. They don't need to fake it. They don't need a, to follow a five-step formula. They don't need to hustle and to try to conjure it up within themselves as long as they're getting what they need, as long as they're rooted in good soil and exposed to the sun and they're getting enough water, the fruit just grows. And when we open ourselves up to God's presence, when we let the Holy Spirit move in our lives, God restores us and renews us into his image. As we receive his compassion, his kindness, his humility and, gentle and gentleness and patience and forgiveness and love, and then let those things spill out to others. Ducks quack, apple trees grow apples, Canadians say a and a boot and wear toques and apologize unnecessarily, and people who are chosen, holy, and dearly loved by God Live lives that are defined by love and the peace of Christ as God transforms them from the inside out. Can you imagine what the church would look like if we really lived into this? It would be a sign and a wonder. It would change the world. And the world is in desperate need of this. I mean, look around. The world is in need of some good news. It is time for us as the church to live into this calling and to represent God's kingdom of love and peace and hope to our world. So the invitation today is simply this, to be who God already says that you are, to live as someone who is chosen, who's holy, and who is dearly beloved. And then to let God transform you from the inside out into somebody whose life radiates with the love of God. Pastor Jeff is going to lead us now in a time of reflection.